I have an intro. I have an intro. Don't care. Don't care. Don't care. Don't care. Welcome to Aliens Land here. We talk about recent tech and combine it with unhealthy doses of nostalgia. There's no discussion of aliens. We actually keep asking them to land here, but they stubbornly stay away. So, tech it is. I'm Richard Cowling, and this is my co-host... Marco Wakil. Hello. So, the first little bit of nostalgia is how the name Aliens Land Here came to be in the first place. It turns out that in the I was really into BBSs and uh, the dial-up BBSs when I was uh, in middle school many, many, many years ago. And it was so trendy to have a handle, a pseudonym. And I don't know why, but I picked Abducted at the time. I haven't used that in a very long time. And later, uh, I decided that I wanted to start my own BBS, still like late middle school, early high school, long, long time ago. And I picked the name Aliens Land Here because it fit well with the pseudonym Abducted. And then when I got a real connection to the internet a couple of years later, the BBS sort of died due to lack of phone line to have other people connect to my BBS. Years later, uh, like 10 years later at least, I created a party chat of the same name, and then Google decided to go and stop having uh, XMPP supported as a first-class citizen, and it got killed again. Now I'm going to res- resurrect it uh, so it lives for the third time. And we'll see how this one does. See, those aliens keep trying to land. They'll eventually yeah. land somewhere. Hopefully. We, we, we can try. All right. Since we have both tried the uh, iOS beta, I, the iOS 8 beta, I would suggest that we start there. And you've been trying it for longer than I have. I think we should probably avoid anything that seems reviewy due to the Apple NDA like stability kinds of stuff, but anything that's feature-wise or should be okay since those were all covered in WWDC sessions, which have been explicitly allowed. Mm -hmm. So um, generally, I mean, I've been using it since beta one, which uh, it's been a decent, you know, decent amount of time. And I think both of basically the handoff and the continuity features have come together really well. Um. That's, in fact, the whole reason I even decided to get set up with the beta at all was the idea of being able to um, start, you know, start a message, start an email in one place and being able to hand it off somewhere else. And I think for people who actually have a Mac, it's going to be something that once it, uh, you know, once it's available to the general public, there's going to be a large subset of people who will not know how they got by without it. It's definitely it's pretty awesome. I think. Wonder- so, what kind of go ahead? What kind of situations have you? Uh, I find yourself using it. In? Like, I find it if I'm, you know, if I'm out somewhere or if I'm in another room and I'm doing a conversation with somebody over iMessage. Um, I find that I'll start a message on iMessage, and then if I'm sitting back down in front of the computer, I'll want to go ahead and continue that. And this way, instead of having to finish my thought. 
you know, be it a long thought. Instead, I can just go onto the computer, you know, hit the, um, hit the little icon on the lower left-hand side of the screen and take over. And that part's really nice. And I think what Apple's trying to do is Apple is trying to get people more invested within iMessage and having them use that as an actual service more. I think in a sense, it's them trying to compete with Facebook and trying to compete with WhatsApp as an actual, you know, bona fide messaging client that, you know, people use in the majority. And I get the feeling that if they do that, that the approach that they're using will be, you know, used quite a bit. And I feel pretty positive about it. Yeah. At the moment, I think that everyone has to go and use a number of different things depending on what they're doing. Even now, we are, we do most of our communication via iMessage, but uh, we still used Google Hangouts for this. <laughs> yeah. And most of the people I know use a combination of Google Hangout plus some other thing, either pure SMS or iMessage or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now, what I think that they're trying, I think the one thing they're really missing out on is um, having any kind of iMessage support for any devices that aren't Apple. So people who are on PCs or people who are um, using Android devices, they're pretty much out of the whole iMessage ecosystem, which, I mean, it's deliberate in part because of the fact that, you know, Apple gets its money mostly through hardware. But it feels, you know, it feels kind of lacking in that sense. But one of the things I think they've done to try and compensate for that is to make it where you can actually send SMS messages through the, you know, through the iMessage app on the Mac. So I think what they're trying to do in a lot of cases, at least for the first world, you know, the U.S., where most people, you know, most people within the U.S. are using either SMS or iMessage and have plans. Mm -hmm. I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to have a blanket approach where if you're talking to somebody within the U.S. that you're, um, you know, that you're basically covered, that you can send an SMS to somebody who's on an Android device and a, um, you know, an iMessage to somebody who's on an iOS device. Right. And that mostly works here, um, though a lot of people do still prefer something that's free. Um, what I'm curious about is the pet, the, um, the ubiquity of SMS plans. I'm wondering if that, uh, you know, what percentage of the populace uh, has them. Yeah, that, and they, and they still aren't. I, I actually don't, ha I have a pay per message SMS plan myself, mm -hmm. uh, since I try to do everything, uh, via internet options. That I, that's actually really interesting. For me, I don't send a lot of SMSs at this point. I mean, I have a few friends who are on, um, you know, who are on Android and Windows phones. So for that, mm -hmm. you know, that makes sense. It's just nice to not have to um, not get a surprise when it comes to the phone bill. I look at it as insurance <laughs> in a way. I I never go over the minimum plan amount for having one. Mm -hmm. So it didn't make sense to do anything other than paper, but it does to get, it does get kind of annoying when I get an SMS from some sort of advertiser or something that doesn't respect those plans. See, now that always seemed unfair to me. The fact that they get, uh, they charge for inbound SMSs. I always thought of it in terms of getting a phone call that when you get a phone call from somebody who's long distance or international, that you're not being charged to pick up the phone and listen to that person. Rather, 
it's the person doing the outbound message that has to pay. Yeah, but it is sort of consistent with on a cell phone, it doesn't matter if it's inbound or not, at least in the US, uh, you still have to pay for the minutes. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Unfortunately. Yeah. So what other thoughts did you have on iOS 8? Um, the iCloud, I mean, I thought the, uh, the new functionality with iCloud is really interesting. I haven't really had much of a chance to get it to work all that well, except for, um, except for actually transferring. So are, are you talking about like the iCloud photo storage stuff? Um, yes, in part because... Or something more specific. Oh, um, what I was meaning was the, uh, the new functionality with the, uh, the folders and the way that, uh, information oh, is... Oh, iCloud to... Drive, okay. Yeah, the iCloud Drive. Now, um, I find the idea interesting. I tried yesterday to, um, since my, I got the new laptop yesterday, I got a new laptop yesterday, mm-hmm. I had tried copying over some of my, uh, preferences files from Coda over to iCloud in order for the purpose of having it sync. I was trying to get the files from uh, my preference files from Coda over to my other laptop. So I decided, oh, there's just the iCloud drive here. I'll copy those over to the mm-hmm. iCloud drive and then go on the other computer and copy them back. And uh, it didn't seem it didn't seem to work. So I haven't had much of a chance of uh, getting to really test it out and you know use it for a useful purpose. I think once they do get that working, I can see it being a credible alternative to Dropbox. Yeah, I, I remember the jobs trying to acquire Dropbox saying, you're just a feature, you're not a product. Well, I mean, granted from his perspective, what do you right. do when you try and acquire a company is, you know, you try and be as negative towards them as possible. <laughs> for the purpose of, uh, you know, for the purpose of trying to get a lower asking price. I mean, it's a typical jobs thing that he'll say, you know, he'll pretty much badmouth something and say that it's crap only to turn mm-hmm. around and then do it six months later or acquire something six months later. What I found is interesting is that a lot of the syncing between stuff like, for instance, one password it doesn't, uh, it's not going to work specifically because of the way that, um, iCloud Drive has changed things, has changed the way things are syncing. So it's going to take a little bit of time in order for people to get their apps updated on iOS and actually have apps in the store that support iOS 8. Um, so out of curiosity, I mean, do you think the old, um, the yeah. way information is stored within iCloud, do you think that's going to become deprecated? That it's going to use this new system? I would imagine eventually they hate to, to supporting more than one thing. Right, right. You you also have uh, Yosemite, right? So in that, I, I I got the impression that the Photos app is going to replace iPhoto. So has have they updated that and have you played with it at all? No, I haven't seen anything for the new Photos app at all. Now, I might be completely obtuse and, um, you know, and missed some kind of beta download on the, uh, you know, on the developer page. But it actually, uh-huh. within Yosemite, it's using the old copy of iPhoto. So um, oh, okay. they had actually said during the keynote that the Photos app was going to be released at a later time. Like uh, they said uh-huh. something along January. So I'm actually looking forward to that in a pretty big way because... Um, 
because I would like to store all of my photos on iCloud instead of, you know, just to be able to have a third right. backup option besides, you know, Black, Backblaze and um, Time Machine. It, it does seem to be very close to what people actually wanted out of a photo backup service, Yeah, which is good. Yeah, and I mean, the pricing isn't bad. I was actually, one of the things I was really waiting for was the prices to drop in order to uh, actually go ahead and get, say, you know, 100 gigabytes of space, Mm -hmm. which um, it doesn't look like they've done yet. However, if (laughs) if you're a developer, you actually get 50 gig free until, I think, November, you know, sometime around November. Okay. Which, I assume that's Mac. Dev- do, do the iOS developers also get that, or is that just the Mac developers? iOS developers get it. I'm actually, I'm yeah. not on the Mac developer list. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll have to uh, check that out. Yeah, which I, I found it really interesting that this time around, as since there's so much um, interaction between the two OSs, that if you're an IO- on the iOS developer list, you also get a copy of, um, of right, Yosemite. Of Yosemite, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which I would actually not be surprised if at some point they make the iOS and the Mac developer one program mm-hmm. simply because, you know, they're looking I, to get more crossover. I, I really hope that they do, um, since it's kind of a pain if you want to do both of them, which most developers that want to do one of them, well, a lot of developers that want to do one of them want to do both of them. And I'm thinking, you know, I would be surprised if they don't. Because, I mean, considering the de- the recent uptick of, um, of Mac sales, I'm thinking that it would serve them to be able to have more developers on the Mac pro, on the, um, you know, the Mac side and be able to, um, continue the streak that they're having. And I mean, of course, what better way to leverage that than to get as many people who are iOS developers into the Mac App Store? Mm-hmm. Maybe someday. They keep giving us other things that we want, so. Well, I mean, there's, uh, they actually have done pretty damn well this time, I think. If you're, yeah. if you're looking through Syracuse's list, I think the one, main, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the one main thing I'm his, uh, his, waiting his for wish is list is fulfilled. Well, he just needs a uh, HFS plus to be, to be fixed. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of funny that I actually had issues with that. Um, <laughs> did yeah. you have corruption? Yeah, I actually had, um, Ouch. when I moved my laptop over, there was, you know, I had to go through and I had to fix things. It didn't seem to be, you know, actual like file corruption. It seemed to be that thing- you know about. <laughs> That's the problem with HFS plus. <sighs> yes, yes. It can corrupt and you won't know. Yeah. But it, uh, I had to go through and I had to repair things and I went ahead and I repaired things on the time machine. And then mm-hmm. I repaired things on the laptop, you know, just to make sure that things were as good as possible. Yeah. But um, one thing of note I noticed with HFS Plus, which I seem to really hate, is that um, if you go and repair stuff, I saved a whole lot of space. Like, I think there were gigabytes upon gigabytes of space that, um, you know, showed as... That mysteriously came back? <laughs> yeah, which I don't know if that means that there are gigabytes and gigabytes of actual legitimate data that got deleted. I hope not. <laughs> I, I I think in most cases, the answer is no. Okay. Uh, in most cases, it was just an error in bookkeeping, mm-hmm. as in uh, something got deleted and it was not necessarily marked as available space. Yeah. And the sad thing is that if I had done this earlier, I might not have had to have deleted my Windows partition. Going back to iOS stuff, have you actually had a chance to play with Metal yet? 
Um, my playing with metal is extraordinarily limited. Uh, I did, I did go and run the demo app finally because I was finally able to update my phone. Um, metal only works on A7 processors and later, and it does not work in the simulator, unlike almost everything else. Metal is Apple's fast new graphics API. It's really close to the hardware. It solves a bunch of problems that OpenGL has. If you are trying to feed the GPU a lot of data, it ends up using a lot of your CPU time building these lists. And after you've built the lists and after you've built everything and start sending uh, it to the GPU, you aren't guaranteed uh, operation execution order, which can be a little bit of a headache. With Metal, you basically build a command list and you send it to the GPU and it's all done as one thing and it's really fast and it has a lot less CPU overhead and it plays more nicely with um, multi-threading and other things that are similar, uh, other similar features that just make it closer to the hardware. Part of OpenGL's problem was that it decided that it was going to be the thing that talks directly to your hardware in addition to a high-level graphics abstraction. And so trying to do both of those things, it ended up doing neither of them as well as it should have been able to do. And, and, and Metal is actually... It might not work very well on like consumer GPUs for desktops and whatnot because it's sort of based around the uh the the gpus that are on the iphones and relating to their tile-based renderer and uh, so it, it might be that it never comes to the mac but I, i'm hoping that something similar eventually does and though it, that might mean horrible horrible things for consumer gpus so maybe i don't want it to come it's it's shading language is based off of c++ which i know some people were annoyed by uh, that it didn't just use someone else's uh, pixel shading language, uh, vertex shading language. But when you look at it, it makes more sense to do it that way, based off of a more common language that almost everyone knows instead of uh, a custom shader language that, uh, and like, um, I mean, GLSL and uh, the now, CG and everything are very, very close to C anyway, but it, it's nicer to to be closer to something that people actually know. So I'm curious that um, you said that Metal doesn't have any kind of support within the simulator at all. So how do you actually do development with it? So you do development basically by plugging in your A7 or later iPhone with iOS 8 and telling your app to run on it. And if you don't have one of those, then you can't do development, which is why it took until uh, beta 4 when I finally installed uh, iOS 8 on my phone before I could even run one of the sample apps. It did look very pretty when I ran it, at least. It's it's not as bad as you might think. Um, it is definitely more convenient to be able to use the simulator um, but the, the the debugging support on device is is pretty good, uh, so it's it's not as horrible as an, of an issue as you might think. I am a little curious about the thoughts that uh, of metal coming to the desktop in some form. 
which in order to do that, I guess that would mean that the GPU architecture would have to switch to something Apple made. Well, I don't think that it would necessarily have to switch to something that Apple made, but it would help. I mean, the GPU on the iPhone itself, it, it's, it's custom Apple, but it's still like power VR sourced for the architecture. And, and, and so it wouldn't necessarily be that to come to the desktops that it would need to be Apple hardware, but it would probably, in order to be efficient anyway, have to be somewhat similar to the PowerVR architecture, um, like a tile-based renderer kind of thing. Are the trade-offs worth it? I mean, considering that I understand with PowerVR that there are a lot of things that are useful for mobile that may not necessarily be useful for a desktop. So that's why I was thinking that it may involve horrible things for the desktop should it occur, um, since it would turn the desktop into something that's more like a mobile device. And that is sort of a direction that Apple has a tendency to have been going toward, um, but hopefully they aren't going to go all the way and kill uh, discrete GPUs altogether. See, I'm thinking... When it comes to things like uh, the MacBook Pro, the MacBook Air, I mean, I could see it where there are no more discrete GPUs and they just decide to go, say, for instance, the Intel route. But they have a whole lot to lose if they end up going just with their own architecture that's ARM-based on the uh, laptop space itself. Because what that does is it makes stuff like Windows completely, you know, done through an emulator rather than something like parallels. Yeah, that that would cause a that that part would cause a huge problem, but I was referring to um just the graphics part of it. Since metal doesn't really require anything uh architectural wise from the CPU, so you could continue going and using uh Intel CPUs as long as uh the GPU uh architecture was more similar to it is on the iPhone. Um, well, I would think in order for them to do that, they would need either a discrete Apple part that's a GPU, or they would need to do some kind of custom Franken CPU from Intel that uses, you know, Intel's instruction set and Apple's GPU. That's true, but if they, if they, as long as they kept the x86 architecture, they wouldn't strictly have to use Intel. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it and it and it could be that they can go and bring metal to the Mac without uh with uh, um other modern GPUs without it being too horribly uh inefficient. That's just sort of my initial impression. Um I haven't dug deeply enough to see how much of a challenge it would be to make the metal API work on more desktopy things. And and oh the other interesting thing about metal is that it's currently um, an Objective C API, not a uh, not a Swift API. Swift being the other big thing out of WWDC. Many would say the biggest thing out of uh, WWDC. I think that the the reason is that they just didn't have uh, the time between when they knew about the language and when they needed to have Metal uh, available to developers. But it's 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 still interesting that it it isn't that uh with that what i'm curious is um what what started first if work on a metal api ended up starting first or if work on a uh you know 
work on Swift besides, you know, the one person, the Chris Latner. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, he he started in like 2010, right? So it would it would have to have been a really long time working on metal in order for metal to have been started first. But I guess you never know. Well, I meant uh, besides, I meant there there was a period of time where it was just the one guy working on yeah, Swift. Yeah, I mean, and, and we don't know how long that was. I think it actually he's actually said it was a good part of a year. Oh, I, well, I mean, okay. That he had so, actually said it publicly. Still, that 2011 was also a long time ago. Okay, okay. <laughs> do you know, out of curiosity, do you know what kind of pipeline there is for a CPU design, like, uh, within Apple? I have no idea. I suspect they're probably doing the standard, like, two or three generations ahead planning kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, what I was... The reason I was coming up with that is that if they're looking at two to three generations ahead, you're looking at two to three years. And what I'm wondering is if something like metal came up as an idea alongside the A7 that they that, decided to. Yeah, that, that would be very possible. Mm -hmm. So there's basically, so there would end up being two parts of Apple where one part of Apple has no idea what the other part of Apple is doing. I think there are many parts of Apple that have no idea what other parts of Apple are doing. <laughs> true, true. Sort of, sort of getting back to this to Swift. Um, I I did actually play with that probably more than I've played um, with Metal. And it, Swift is, I mean, Swift is nice. Um, it was described to me uh, by someone as sort of like Python only fast, um, <laughs> but that's not giving it enough credit. I don't think. Um, it is a bit like Python. It is, um, a bit, it has elements from other things like Haskell. And then there was a whole bunch of, um, probably concessions that it made in order to be compatible with all of the objective C libraries. Um, for example, if you have, it, it has named parameters, um, but those named parameters need to still be in a specific order which I think is sort of a concession to Objective-C. And if you look at APIs, like if you have, um, in certain situations, you're required to have each of the subsequent parameters be named parameters, except for the first parameter, which is another Objective-C thing, thing, because the, the fir first parameter in Objective-C um, typically will not have a name. And so it basically works the same way in Swift, where the first parameter doesn't have a name and all the rest of the parameters are named parameters, which just is kind of weird. It, it's, it's, it's ultimately a very practical language for just sort of, this is what exactly what Apple needs in order to meet, uh, app, uh, does in order to meet Apple's needs. Um, while at the same time trying to give the, st uh, stuff that developers have been yelling about to them. The memory management is mostly non-existent, but once again, it's not completely non-existent. Um, it's not like uh, Java or some sort of other managed language where there's a garbage collector that comes by periodically, so there's no garbage collector load. Um, but there is that that has a consequence of having things that you need to actually think about when you're uh, developing. So while there's no pointers, you still need to worry about uh, things called retain cycles, which is where 
one object has a pointer to another object and that object has a pointer back to the original object. Um, so in that case, uh, it, you can have an orphan where it goes, uh, where you're never actually using that again and the memory leaks. If you're, if you don't remember to make one of those links, what they call a weak link, um, where it doesn't really care if the one that it's attached to ever goes away or not. It's, it's not like, uh, Java where you almost never need to think about memory management at all. You still need to think about it just not as often. Swift has some other stuff that I like, um, though. It has a thing called um, optional chaining. And so because there's no pointers, you can't have a null pointer. And so their response to this was uh, a thing called optional variables, where it can either have the normal type of a variable or nil. And um, that results in when you have a bunch of nested optionals, uh, like normally where you would have point previously where you'd have pointer to a, another sub object that has a pointer to another sub object. Um, and before in like C++, you would go, uh, if not null, look at this, if, uh, in another nested, uh, if block, if not null, look at this parameter, if not null, look at this parameter. Uh, in Swift, there are thing called optional chaining where, um, you basically do a dot syntax for each subparameter, and uh, you put a question mark by it. So if you have things like four layers deep that are all all might not be there, you can do it. You can do the check and then execution of your conditional code based off of it's there in uh, just one line, which cre- uh, solves a whole bunch of mess. When you're saying use the question mark, is that kind of like the evaluator? The question mark is when you're declaring an optional variable is what you use to tell it that it is an optional variable. So you would go like, uh, instead of int, it would be an int question mark hmm. kind of thing. Um, but for the chaining, it's basically an indication that you want to check this optional to see if it's nil before proceeding. And then if, if it proceeds, then you would continue down until you execute the code block. So when it comes to uh, Swift, what is your adoption plan for it? At the moment, I have not adopted it. I've mostly just played with it. Um, I will eventually probably start writing new modules in for my, my app, Simple Lift Log, which I will also soon have other new apps. But at the moment, that's my current app on the iTunes App Store. After iOS 8 is released, I will start writing my new stuff in Swift. But until then, um, I haven't started actually writing new stuff in it. I've continued with Objective-C. Most of my Swift uh, development has been in uh, Swift Playgrounds, which I think are fantastic. You know of the Swift Playgrounds, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you you open one up, and everything that you put into this playground is immediately put over on the right-hand side, um, in a little thing that tells you what it does. So if you create a for loop, it will go and tell you the, on the right hand side, you can go and do, uh, tell it to watch the value of X. And then you can do the click a little eyeball and it will show you the graph of the values of X over time. Cause you, you, you can play it, um, like from 30 seconds back or whatever, and you can graph the results of your output variables. And you can other do other th- things that are nice, like debugging uh, views 
for your applications. So you just create a view and you put all the stuff that you want into the view. And without ever putting it into a real application, you can just uh, click the quick view thing and it will show you exactly what your view looks like, which is, which is really great for trying out the new APIs um, and anything that you didn't previously understand in a, in a very sort of safe environment where you're not going to break your app if something goes wrong. Other sort of developer things relating to the, the iPhone. Um, I noticed that instead of doing things like rotation or specifying if you have an iPhone or an iPad, they, they have a thing called size classes. And so size classes are basically a, it's like a, in the interface builder, it's like a grid where you say, for these size classes, this is how I want to lay out my application. So there's normal and compact. And so if you, if you have the, if you have your iPhone vertically and you rotate it, the vertical dimension goes from normal to compact. Uh, and the, the horizontal goes sort of the other way. And, Similarly, if you have an iPhone version, it would be compact with an iPad would be normal. And so if you lay out your user interface elements uh, with their automatic constraints, then um, as soon as you switch it to the other layout, as long as you've specified the new thing that you want it to do for that layout, um, it will automatically adjust itself for the other kind of device. So you don't need to have separate applications or storyboards or anything like that for your iPhone version versus your iPad version of your application as long as you set these things up properly. And so by default, everything is applied to every size class. Uh, so for the stuff where you don't care that much about the layout, you can do it that way. Or if, if, if it doesn't make sense to uh, shrink your stuff, or, or if it doesn't make sense to eliminate it when it shrinks or something like that, uh, you don't have to uh, if it's in the, the sort of normal default one that has everything selected. But if you do need to get rid of some information because you're on the iPhone instead of the iPad, it will do it automatically. And this sort of gets us to our next topic. Um, the, the side classes are very strongly hinting that the next iPhone is going to have a different size screen. And so we need these size classes in order to make these other devices work properly. I'm not, I don't necessarily think it'll have, uh, it's hinting at it having a different size screen as much as it having a different resolution. Uh, that's also possible, yes. Yeah. Um, but the thing is, the the size classes are not based off of resolution, but they're based off of points. So if they're not having a different size screen and they're just having a different resolution, well, that's that that the the two x four x stuff handles that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the size classes they're 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 based off of the points on the screen, which is the physical viewable area, um, not the number of pixels for the area. Makes sense. So that that's why if they are coming out with a 4.7 inch screen, which seems to be the most probable next device size, and they are keeping their pixel density, then they would need to have another class for this. So 
When it comes to 4.7 inches, I mean, how do you feel about that? Like when you hear that, do you think, oh boy, I'm going to have a iPhone that's more like the size of a galaxy, you know, of an older galaxy or. So I actually, in addition to my iPhone have a, well, it's my wife's, uh, I have a Nexus five and it, it actually feels pretty good. So up to five inches, it actually does feel pretty good. It's a, it's a little bit too big for my wife, but it fits in my pocket fine. I can take it around with me pretty easily. So, so a five inch screen is not a problem to me. A 5.5 inch screen, which I think was, was it 5.5? That was the other one. Mm -hmm. I think something like that. Yeah. That, that seems like it's getting a bit on the big side. Um, so I don't know how I would deal with that. Well, I think what the 5.5 inch phone is for is for people who want an iPad. They want an iPad or an iPad mini and they want a phone, but they can't afford both. <laughs> I re I mean, <laughs> I know, you know, I'm kind of saying it facetiously, but I think it's actually true because, um, I have a friend who has one of those galaxy notes that are, you know, 5.56 mm -hmm. inches, something like that. And I mean, he loves it. I think it's a monstrosity, but I mean, he, uh, <laughs> for him, it's kind of a replacement of a tablet. Like he'll do things like he'll watch movies, you know, when he, he'll watch movies on his, you know, his phone. Not because, uh, you know, not necessarily because it's ideal, but because, you know, he's kind of strapped for cash and prefers having, you know, prefers having that instead. Yeah. I, I, I imagine that, that, that would make sense. Yes. And I know from Apple's perspective that it makes the most amount of sense for them if, uh, you know, if we buy everything that they make <laughs> and they're, you know, and, and I think that, you know, people like you and I are more likely to buy at least one part, you know, we'll, we'll buy the new iPad, we'll buy the new iPhone, we'll buy the new laptop. But I think they're trying to cater to people who may not necessarily do that. And then also mm -hmm. there's the people who just think that, you know, love the biggest phone they can get their hands on because, <laughs> you know, because they, uh, because they wear cargo pants anyway and it doesn't matter. <laughs> they don't have particularly tight pockets. So, I mean, I guess there's that too. Well, those people can just go and get a iPad mini and use uh, Skype. <laughs> I would, you know, I would laugh if they start having iPad minis that actually have phone support. That would be, that would be pretty funny. <laughs> I, I suspect that they do not want to encourage that, however, so they'll probably just stick with the, the, the iPhones getting bigger. Yeah. So did you, did you think that they're going to keep around the smaller iPhone when they put it, when they have the bigger one? I personally think that I'm inclined to say no, but there's a part of me that really hopes they do. Because I'm, I'm one of the people that I'm not that, when it comes to a larger iPhone, I'm not that excited about it. I mean, apart mm -hmm. from say, you know, apart from say a resolution bump, I mean, I like the idea of having a phone that has greater DPI. But mm -hmm. when, you know, when I think about it, that I've always liked smaller phones and I've always liked, because when it comes to my phone, I'm not doing a lot on it. I'm not using it as say a primary computing platform by any means. So I look at it and I say, I just, 
I'd use it to when I'm on the go or if I'm going to go to the gym or if I'm in the car as a passenger and I want to look something up, then yeah, that makes sense. You know, it makes sense to do that. And it's convenient to have a smaller device. But from my, you know, from my perspective that I guess 4.7 inches, that's not that much of a difference. I mean, after all, look at, look at the iPhone 4 and the 4S compared to the 5 that they didn't keep the form factor of the iPhone 4 when going to their next device. They just unilaterally decided we're going to have a bigger screen and that's that. Yeah, if they do make it much bigger, there are a number of people I think that would be kind of upset about that. There's a lot of women that it it starts getting a bit too big for their hands um, when you when you move beyond the 4-inch phone. And even there, it's it's getting sort of close. And see, that was one of the things I was wondering about when it came to them not increasing the size of the iPhone before. It was like, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking that they were looking at the iPhone as a universal device for, um, you know, for men, for women, for, you know, children or teenagers. Right. That it's, you know, something like the initial three point, I think it's 3.5 inch screen that they had done that with those constraints in mind. The fact that you could take your thumb and put it to the upper left corner without having to stretch too far for the majority of people. You know, I thought they looked at that as a pretty decent design constraint. Right. And that's probably part of why they had to wait until after Jobs died in order to release the bigger phone in the first place. What I'm thinking is that this will be the first phone that they're doing that they're looking at it from a sales perspective at least I believe, rather than the perspective of, you know, design about hands, you know, hands being able to fit the top part of the screen as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm I'm hoping that it's not just a sales thing and that they are sort of understanding that some people have um, enormous hands. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And and I actually am one of those people with enormous hands, which is part of why the bigger phones don't bother me. Yeah, same here. I guess what was going through my head is those uh, those memos from the lawsuit from the, uh, I think it was the Samsung right. Apple lawsuit that says that they're selling these larger phones. People want these phones that we don't have, you know, in mm-hmm. very direct language. And I can't help but think if this is a response to that. Right. I remember, and there were other notes like, um, to catch up with and leapfrog in areas for that, that were specifically listed. Getting to that, I'm curious about their new CPU architecture that they'll announce this time around. I'm wondering if this is just, this last year was a fluke where, you know, the A7 was present in the iPhone, the iPad mini, the iPad Air. I'm wondering if they're going to be doing something like that consistently across the board moving forward. Uh, I certainly hope so. It it definitely makes decisions easier because you don't have to worry about making those sort of, do I want something faster or do I want something more convenient to stick in my pocket? You, you just you automatically get the fastest one, which I think is better. I, I get the feeling that if they do a 4.7 and a 5.5 inch, that it'll use the same CPU, except the larger device will have a slightly better thermal envelope, similar to the iPad mini versus the iPad Air. 
That that seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, which I can deal with. Uh, you know, I can deal with a few percentage points when it comes to the difference. You know, speed difference on a phone. Mm-hmm. So. Do you still use the iPad Mini as your primary pad? The uh, yes, I do. I actually um, I gave the iPad Air to Tanya, so I don't even ah. use the iPad Air anymore. I see. And from her perspective, she likes um, she really likes the Air. Like she she's a fan of the bigger tablet. I mean, between the two, to my understanding, she has. So right now, in her case, she has one of the original iPad Minis, the ones that were non Retina, and then she has the iPad Air. I see. And she likes the air specifically for working out because, you know, it's a nice big screen that rests on the, uh, that basically rests on the elliptical. Ah, okay. Does she watch something on it? Yeah, she, when she works out, she watches something on Netflix. Netflix Ah. or TiVo or whatnot. I see. So, yeah. I need to, I need to put, a miniature TV into simple lift log so people can entertain themselves. <laughs> Does YouTube have an API, like a cross iOS API? Not exactly, no. Okay. And I remember like Microsoft getting in trouble. Remember when they released that uh, YouTube app for, and it didn't have the commercials because it wasn't part of the, maybe they do have an API, but it's just that it's not a very good API. Google complained, Hey, you, you don't have any commercials here. You can't use this. And Microsoft responds, well, you didn't give us an API to get the commercials. <laughs> Granted, this is, uh, this is Windows Phone. I mean, Google didn't care about Windows Phone because they have such a small market share, which is why Microsoft had to make it themselves in the first place. Right. I just didn't know if there was some kind of, say, iOS library or whatnot that you could use for YouTube. It um, seems kind of ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if there is, I don't know what it is. So, getting to other things that are Retina, you recently got a new laptop, which you had alluded to a couple of other times in the podcast what was your motivation for getting this new laptop I, because you already had a retina app laptop yeah and what do you think of it so i had a 2012 15 inch macbook pro that was basically maxed out and i traded it in for a brand new 2014 macbook pro 15 inch basically maxed out Mm-hmm. The main reason that I ended up getting it was my hard drive was full on the old MacBook Pro. I had a 500 gigabyte SSD filled with lots and lots of raw photos, which mm-hmm. it ended up getting to around 98, 99%. And I just went to the Grand Canyon and took tons and tons of pictures. And just, uh, it turned out that I couldn't do any importing. I couldn't do anything at all. So I figured, you know what, why not? I'll just go ahead, I'll get a new laptop, I'll take the old laptop and I'll hand it down. You know, mm-hmm. hand it down to the next person on the list. <laughs> Which, that, that's one of the things that how it works in my family, is that when I get something new, the old device ends up going to somebody. Yeah, I, th- I think that's how it works in a lot of families. At the moment, I have the nicest thing, and then it, it sort of skips over my wife at the moment and goes to my son, and mm-hmm. then after he gets a new machine and will go to my daughter yeah my daughter doesn't really need one since she's not even one yet right <laughs> so impressions wise the the machine it boots really fast like from the uh the mac chime i'll see the login screen within a good solid three seconds oh wow 
you count you count to three and it's you know and it's at the login screen which i was it i haven't seen that on the old device so i don't know if there's some kind of advancement in cpu and waking up or anything along those lines that only applies to this new you know the newer laptops but it was a perceptible a very very perceptible speed increase when it comes to booting up i wonder if they they started using do you know if they started using faster ssds or if because you got the biggest ssd that it ends up being faster or anything like that i have in this case i have no idea i have no idea what's behind that at all it's just really impressive i mean hmm. it's speed wise booting it is similar to booting an iphone or an ipad nice so i mean overall from you know a day-to-day perspective i'm this is actually my first day even using it to uh, go ahead and record this podcast <laughs> but over the process of migration was um you know it was pretty clean for the most part like most of the apps for those of you who don't know the mac has a migration assistant where i migrate all of my apps and my user account and whatnot from my time machine or my time capsule so mm-hmm. i just you know you let it sit there for four or five hours however long it takes to copy things over and then for the most part you boot into a desktop that looks basically the same as your old laptop. There were some things that I had to set up. I had to set up Backblaze again. And when it came to the app Coda, Coda copied nothing over. So I had, Ouch. yeah, so I had to find a way of moving my sites over. That's sort of weird because they're one of the more well known, popular Apple developers. You, so you would have thought that they would be on the the Apple API bandwagon to get your stuff over? My guess, honestly, is I had iCloud syncing turned on mm-hmm. within Coda. And so my thought was, okay, if my site lists and all that are being stored remotely, I just move it over to the new machine and turn iCloud on and my site should show up. Which okay. it turns out that it doesn't. It didn't do that. Now, if you don't have iCloud turned on, it stores your site lists locally within library slash application data slash Coda 2, you know, some directory uh-huh. like that. Right. So my feeling is that if I didn't have iCloud turned on, that it would have just worked seamlessly when I did the, uh, the migration assistance. So my guess is that it's a matter, it's one of those things running Yosemite and the changes to iCloud that made it, you know, that made that happen. But when it happened, I pretty much panicked for a moment thinking, oh my God, I'm going to have to do, I'm going to have to put another hundred FTP sites in potentially manually. <laughs> that, that does sound incredibly painful. Yeah. Wow. You, you have a lot of FTP sites. I guess you would have to with uh, the number of clients that you have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not that I end up using them for the most part, but then the, the part that bothered me more wasn't necessarily the FTP to the client websites but rather the development, the development servers I have that are matched up to sub, you know, matched up to subversion repository and MySQL and all that kind of stuff. I was, wasn't really looking forward to setting that up again. So were all those things very angry that your SSH key changed or did your SSH? I assume that your SSH key changed. It doesn't look like it. Okay. It doesn't look like it at all because when I shelled into, um, I shelled into my work demo server and it didn't seem to do anything. So hmm. actually the SSH key wouldn't change. It wouldn't change at all because it would be stored within 
I was able to finally copy over all of the settings once I turned off iCloud. Mm -hmm. So the key would have stayed the same. And then I noticed when I went into Shell and I shelled into a site, um, they didn't show any kind of warning on that either. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I'm looking forward to with this laptop is at some point I would like to get a 4K monitor. Yeah. Well, do you want a, do you want a 4K monitor or do you want the, um, or the 5.7, is it? Um, the, the mythical one that the, the current, uh, bus does, still doesn't support. <laughs> <laughs> I have not, I actually haven't seen anything about that. It's just the rumor based off of the wallpaper that showed up long ago. Oh, giving us, like, giving oh. us hope. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I see what you're talking about. I forgot about that. I would prefer one of those, honestly, because, yeah. um, just for the purpose of practice, I took my existing 30 inch monitor and I put it into 1920 by 1080, which would be the effective one quarter resolution of what a 4K right. monitor would be like. And I'm not a particular fan of the reduced desktop space. Yeah. That's the resolution that I have been using, which I am not happy about. Um, and even though I've been using it for years, I, I didn't want to get a new monitor until I could both increase the resolution, uh, pixel density and increase the amount of usable desk space that I have. See, I'm, I would be perfectly happy with the exact amount of desktop space that I have right now. Just. Right. What, so, so for reference, you, you have it at, um, 2000, whatever. What was it again? 2560 by, uh, 1600. Yeah, 2560. Yeah. So, I mean, I have, for those of you listening, those one or two people who may be listening, I have a, uh, the <laughs> Dell 3001 FP. I think that's what it is. Well, that was the one I was considering getting a while, well, a while back, back before I decided that my next monitor was going to be at least 4K. What's interesting, I was looking online at the, uh, the Dell, Dell has their Uber 32 inch 4K monitor, and I've noticed that you can find it online for around 2000 now. Yeah, so it's actually, That's, that is, that is kind of tempting. Yeah, it is actually within striking range. And I think for me, the one thing that's a holdout for me is I want to see what Apple does with their cinema display before biting. Right. It, it's sort of unclear to me if they're going to go cinema display. I mean, I guess they would probably have to go cinema display first because they don't want to leave Mac Pro people out in the cold. That's not necessarily true because I, I remember listening to an ATP once where there was an iMac there was some kind of iMac that came out that had this new fangled display that wasn't available, you know, wasn't available at all within the monitor itself, where you had to basically, if you wanted to get this nice new display, you had to get an iMac, and you were stuck to that. Well, may maybe maybe they will put out a uh, 5K iMac before they do the cinema display then. See, that that crossed my mind specifically because they could do whatever kind of wiring, hardware wiring internally. Yeah, they don't have to worry as much about uh, bandwidth issues. Yeah. So I mean that would be that More would standards. be <laughs> that would be incredibly depressing if they did that. The interesting thing about that is if they did that though, they then you would have probably a monitor that you could plug into the other one because usually with the iPad or I, iMacs you can use those as an external monitor 
Yes, but would you be able to have the, um, would you be able to support that kind of input from an external device? So the the question is, what would they do there? And the sort of obvious answer is, well, let's use both display ports. Yeah. But I, that's sort of an un y thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it would it would just be sad to have to get an iMac and then plug my MacBook Pro <laughs> into my iMac to just use <laughs> as a dumb computer display. Yeah. A long time ago, and I think it might actually be the display that you're talking about, that the cinema display didn't exist yet. Uh, when they released that iMac, I was very tempted to do just that and buy an iMac just for the display um, because it was roughly the same cost as buying a display of, of that size and quality. <laughs> That's just funny to me. I mean, it definitely shows how iMacs are for people who are practical, you know, for this. <laughs> <laughs> and cinema displays are for people who have Mac Pros who want pretty much who uh, don't pretty care much, on yes. dropping that kind of coin. I mean, they I think they do normally use a, a higher quality quality displays, but still. <laughs> I'd laugh. We find that the new uh, the new cinema display is has like a sapphire display or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that would be a lot of sapphire. <laughs> no, not that it would kind of happen. Just just in case you decide to, you know, put your cinema display in your in your pocket and it rubs against your keys you know do you um do you have things thrown at your cinema display at a you know <laughs> every- i i i know that i use it to practice darts <laughs> Sa- sapphire display would be so great there i, I won't chip it with my darts I, I just imagine you can you can write a dart app for the mac app store <laughs> <laughs> there we go uh, and the other thing is like are they ever going to have these displays have a uh, touch input at all? And I mean, they, they had the whole big thing when they first talked about y- using touch on a, uh, on a desktop machine where it's just not ergonomically comfortable, which is true, but you wouldn't necessarily need to change your primary mode of input to the touch display if you have one. And I think it would be useful for a lot of situations. See, I'm I'm not as sold on that because how I look at it, when you use a laptop, you have to always have your hand raised in order to do whatever kind of uh, interface that you're going to do with it. So from that perspective, I mean, I could see hand fatigue setting in really, really quickly. Right. But I mean, there's other situations where you'd want to do that. Uh, where you'd want one of those monitors, like, for example, if you're doing any sort of collaboration on, well, any of the devices, but in particular or something with a large screen like an iMac, if you're showing someone something and you point at it and they point at it, it's a much more effective way of communicating what you're trying to say about the interface. Yeah, but I mean, how how often do you think they assume that there are two people sitting in front of the computer just, you know, controlling the same interface? That's that's true. It's probably not particularly often. Nevertheless, I I know that there has been times when I just wanted to poke at something instead of using instead of grabbing the mouse because I, what I wanted to touch was not necessarily small, so I didn't need fine control. But like for example, if I just want to very quickly switch the window focus or something like that, it, I would I would found it very useful to be able to poke my screen. I think it's one of those things that's clever, but it's not. I don't think it's good enough to warrant the hardware cost. And also, 
in a lot of cases you have, I believe most of their sales are done through laptops. So there's still, you know, there's still things like the magic trackpad that does most of the kind of gestures that, you know, that most people are interested in. Not to mention the fact that when it comes to laptop displays, that there's the whole smudging issue, which, I mean, you still get that with phones, but I think it's even worse when it comes to laptops. That's true. That's true. Uh, Oh, well. It's it's it may it may be something that never happens. It's it's just that a, a long time ago. Here's more nostalgia for us. A long time ago, when I was working on uh, an autonomous vehicle, we we were doing testing in the desert, and we were driving around. And one of the people was like, "We need a touchscreen to, for control here." And a lot of the other the, the a lot of, and this was a non-programmer, and a lot of the programmers are like, "We have laptops. We can just control that way. It's not a big deal." And but we eventually got one and we mounted it in the center. We we found that whenever possible, we used the touchscreen display instead of the laptop, even if it was just even if it was sitting on our lap, and unless it was something that we actually could not do with the touchscreen, and it was a really horrible, resistive, small touchscreen. Oh. Uh, unless there was something we couldn't do with it, we always used it. Mm. And and and. Before we put it in, we're like, oh, we're, we're probably never going to use that thing, but sure, we'll go and placate you and put one in. But it got used all the time. I think it's a matter of preference in a pretty large way. Like, um, when you said, um, resistive touchscreen, all my mind went to are the Toyotas <laughs> and their touchscreens. Some of those car touchscreens are very painful to use. And I mean, and part of that is, some of the other interface choices that they make, like buttons that are too small. Like I think of Toyota, I mean, that's the primary thing that I think about, is that when it comes to Toyota, I actually find that it's worse for me to use a touchscreen within a car than it is to, say, use BMW in the wheel. Yeah, and and I've had a, a similar experience with doing things with the nav. It was easier for me to use a lot of the iDrive stuff than... Um, I think it was a Cadillac that had a touchscreen on the car that I tried that I, I didn't find as, as easy to use as the iDrive. So speaking of cars and uh, touchscreens, have you tried out the touchscreen in a Tesla? I haven't, no. Um, I hear they're much better than most of the other touchscreens. Yes, yes. They are a whole class above pretty much any other car interface I've used. I would imagine that. I mean, and part of it is, again... The, the Tesla one is capacitive instead of resistive, and the other is the sort of culture that goes along with Tesla in the first place, I think. I heard they snapped up a whole bunch of ex-Apple engineers to work on that project. <laughs> that, that, would, that would not surprise me at all. It's just kind of, uh, it's kind of sad because when it comes to Tesla and I see the interface, it just makes me wish that there could be some version of iOS, you know, just pure iOS on the car. You know, not mm-hmm. CarPlay, not, you know, not any kind of, any kind of limited interface that goes into it. I just wish there could be a freaking iPad on the dash in the car <laughs> that launches. Well, you, a- you could just mount an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but doing that, you're not going to have, say, your car stats. Well, the thing is, that's not necessarily true, and it wouldn't necessarily be an iPad. Um, my brother-in-law... My sister's husband has a the BRZ, and he decided that he was going to go and put a supercharger in it, um, and he did that, and then he got it tweaked, and he he hooked up 
um, the information read out to an old Nexus 7 that had uh, custom software on it specifically for uh, car informational output, like the, the statistics on the supercharger and the current amount of the current settings for various things. I, I don't know exactly what they are, um, but you could he could look at a, a lot of those things and tweak them uh, via the Nexus 7, which was kind of cool. Maybe I could do that. <laughs> maybe i'm just imagining that i get a new car you know i get a new m4 or i get an sl or something like that and just uh do my damnness to mount a nexus or an ipad to the dash there yeah uh, unfortunately you can't really do the exact thing that he did before because it only works on the the old nexus sevens for some reason that's weird huh i wonder what kind of limitation that is but it's because the guy who did the, the custom software decided that he wasn't going to do it anymore. Oh, okay. It's unclear just how much flexibility there's going to be in that sort of thing relating to CarPlay and uh, Android's... Uh, what was their, that one called? Um, <laughs> we'll call it not CarPlay for the purpose of discussion. And well, we can call it Android Play. <laughs> that works. And 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 both of those look very similar, actually. I, I went to the I.O. Extended, and they touched on it briefly. And, and it does look actually sort of very similar to Apple's CarPlay. And the, the, the sort of nice thing there is you aren't mutually exclusive. So the manufacturer can support the Android one and uh, CarPlay. So how would that work when a manufacturer supports both? Does it pull up the CarPlay interface when you put in an iPhone and the Android interface when you put in an Android device? It's basically that, yes. Okay. The information that gets presented, I think, and I'm not 100% sure, is basically what the car manufacturer is willing to provide the device with. So I don't know if it's everything that you would get via like an ODB2 port. I'm guessing no. But it would certainly be cool if if you did get all that information because that would be that would be super useful for people that like to tune and play with their car a lot. Right. So out of all the interfaces for like CarPlay, Android, quote unquote Android Play, what car manufacturer have you seen that seems to be the most impressive to you? That I couldn't tell you because I don't know very much about which things each of the manufacturers are supporting i mean bmw has a pretty good history with supporting at least apple stuff but but i don't know enough about it to, do you have any ideas um i actually looking at the one from mercedes it looked pretty good but there was another company i think it was audi i want to say that had a uh, you know that had a touchscreen and had uh, basically it looked like all of the uh, a checklist of all the amenities so mm-hmm. it's probably something we should come back to next week. Um, someone made a nice Venn diagram, and it has a thing that's titled Car Wars, and it has, oh, it's, it's, apparently it's Android Auto. as the things that, the cars that are Android Auto, both, and CarPlay. And Audi is one of the ones that supports both. Mercedes is also one that supports both. So you're covered there. But BMW is only iOS. But since I think that you would be going there anyway, it doesn't really matter too much. I remember seeing the list of manufacturers that were Android Auto only and not looking, not seeing anything that looked too enticing. Yeah. 
There's really not. <laughs> um, Maserati, maybe, but we, I, I'm, I can't afford a Maserati, so. I was not impressed driving. Um, I can't remember what model of Maserati it was, but I wasn't particularly impressed driving it. I remember I, I, it might have been Jalopnik, but it might have been something else where they drove this Maserati and basically called it the worst car that they have ever driven, which I was sort of surprised by. It's, um, when I test drove a Maserati, it, the sensor, you know how the cars have front sensors to make sure mm-hmm. that you're not bumping into anything. They kept mm-hmm. going off all the time. And the person who, <laughs> the person who I was with who was doing the test drive said, Oh, it's just something that seems to be local to this neighborhood. So your car, your, your car will be fine as long as you only don't drive it here. Yes. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking to myself, well, can I test drive it near my house? But for when it comes to Maserati, the interface wasn't particularly impressive. There were bugs, you know, there were basically bugs that came up while driving, which may be specific to the area. I don't know. And then also when it comes to the power of the car, you know, it's not that, not that great, you know, not to warrant 130 grand. Compared, you know, compared to, say, getting a Mercedes, getting some kind of AMG Mercedes, it just doesn't compare at all. But the nice thing about Maseratis, though, is that you can get, like, a used one, like a five-year-old used one for, like, a quarter of the price. So, I mean, if you really, really wanted a Maserati, that would be the way that you could do. You could get one. Yeah, I, I, I don't think I... I don't think I care enough about Maserati. So, what, what car were you thinking of as being most likely then uh for my next car i'm it's kind of a toss-up between one of the m's and an sl unless i go the cheap route unless i go where i'm just going to save up money for a while what's the difference between the m's for you i mean there's there's the m3 and the m4 when one is the the coupe but um which which holds more appeal to you well i was i wasn't really thinking so much m3 I was thinking M4, M5, or M6. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're done with the M3? Um, <laughs> well, I mean, the M4... You've had enough of it? The M4 is pretty much an M3. You know, the M3 that I yeah, drive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the, the M3, the four-door M3, I didn't really ever find all that appealing. Since, I mean, the 3 Series is a small, small car to begin with. Looking at that, having a four-door, you know, a four-door M3, the doors are smaller... The, uh, you know, you deal with constraints that you just don't deal with when you deal with an M4. And then also, I mean, the M3 doesn't really have the convertible option anymore, which I pretty, you know, I like it quite a bit within my current M3. Yeah, you and your convertibles. Well, I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, so I mean, I like that. Although, I mean, I am considering an M5 and an M6, and if I do, if I got an M6, I wouldn't get the convertible, since, I mean, I'm not a fan of soft tops at all. But, I mean, I'm thinking, like, with an M6, you know, or an M6 Grand, uh, what's it called? Grand Turismo? Just say GT. <laughs> okay. Yeah, with the GT, it's pretty much, it gives you... The space that you would have wanted in an M3 um, sedan, except in you know, except in a different car. So, and then there are the the SLs. I guess they're they're a 
bit more expensive than the BMWs that you were considering, right? Well, I mean, it depends what kind of SL you're looking at. The SL starts at around 100. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's comparable to, say, an M5. Mm-hmm. So, you're looking for an SL550 starts at, you know, just around 100 grand. However, their leases, if you look at a lease, their leases are pretty good. I could get a lease on an SL550 for less than what I pay right now on my M3. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they appeal with that, even, say, the non-AMG version. There's the fact that it's only a two-seater, which means that uh, if some, you know, if some kid would like to come home with us for the week, <laughs> <laughs> I can conveniently say, oh, I'm sorry, there's no room for you in this car. <laughs> we came we came down in the two-seater. Oh, I'm so sorry. So, if you're considering a two-seater, have you considered the R8? Um, the R8, to, I mean, from what I've seen, the R8 seems to be pretty underpowered compared to, um, you know, compared to what I've seen along the lines of SLs. They, I mean, the R8s, they drive really, I mean, they're just glued to the road when you drive one. So, so you did, so you did actually test drive one then? Yeah, I did. I did. Oh, okay. And I felt kind of, you know, I felt a little bad considering that they had to move cars around the showroom in order to get it out to drive. <laughs> so I, I, I really miss having a car. So when are you going to go back to that? I mean, probably after moving. If we end up moving, um, which is far from any sort of actual knowing, I, I would, I would get a, a car, but I don't know what kind of car. Um, I'm, I'm imagining that it would probably be of the cheaper variety at first. Um, but I don't know exactly. What would you get if you uh, were deciding to go the cheap route and save money? Um, anywhere from a Prius to like a 328. Oh, God. Not a Prius. Not a Prius. <laughs> well, I have, um, you know, my brother in law, he works at uh, Toyota. So I could probably get a pretty good deal on one. I see. But I mean, still, not a Prius. <laughs> yeah, realistically, probably something closer to, say, a 328. Similar to that, I would probably also test drive like uh, in a Cadillac ATS since they are very three seriesy, mm-hmm. and I'm very interested in seeing what the ATS V ends up being like. Um, I don't know if you saw the video that I linked you, yeah, but it was certainly thrashing the Nurburgring. I guess it's it's really strange because I'm kind of in this odd position where. The majority of cars that I get that would be quote unquote cheaper and saving money are under a budget of fifteen hundred a month. So there's a whole lot of cars that I could get, pretty much based on um, do I want to save a little bit of money or if I want to save a lot of money. Or you could uh, you could do what my brother-in-law did and get a BRZ. I don't know if you ever drove it. Did you ever drive one? The BRZ, it was quite funny. I actually wrote the local Subaru dealership, and they didn't write me back at all. Nice. Yeah, they're, they're sort of hard to find. Well, they, they aren't now, but they used to be uh, hard to find. But they, they're, they're, very, they're very driver's cars. They're not the fastest things in the world, but they have really entertaining handling and very responsive. I guess that's... For what it costs, I'm imagining. Yeah, and 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 they're in the twenties. Okay, okay. So, so there aren't very many car, uh, cars that are in the twenty thousand dollar or twenty whatever 
$1,000 range that are rear-wheel drive, uh, very responsive, and still not horribly, horribly slow. I'm wondering, uh, do you ever think Tesla is going to bring back their Roadster? No. <laughs> uh, at least not in the way that they had it before. Clearly, they can't because Lotus refuses to make them for them anymore. But even if they're doing their own Roadster-style thing, I think that it's more worth it for them to continue on their progression down the size classes until they get to something economy before they start working their way back into like uh, something like the Roadster was. Though you saw the news that they are offering to replace their old batteries well, at a cost, and they now get 400 miles of range, right? Yes, and that's partly that was part of the reason I was thinking, wow, I would love for them to be able to do that with like a, you know, rework the Roadster and have something that's more, you know, Model S-like. After all, having a car that's 400 miles, I mean, that uh, that fixes most of the issues when it comes to yeah. gas. Very little range anxiety when you when when they go that far, right? And and I bet and I bet the release of that battery really gave the resale value a kick in the pants. Yeah, I mean I've I haven't been in a Roadster, but I've been in a it's an Elise, I think. I mean they're tiny though. Yes, they are and light, and which is why you can get the larger range out of it out of a good battery. Let's close off the show and then. Anyone that actually did listen, thank you for listening. I'm Richard Cowling, and that is Mark L. Wakil. And uh, you can reach us, I would assume, somehow. We haven't set up anything yet. Uh, but I, there is the, show, the show's Twitter account at Aliens Land here. You know, it was really funny is that I was thinking when I started talking about Backblaze... I was thinking of actually doing a fake sponsor read. <laughs> Aliens Land here is sponsored by Backblaze. They didn't give us any money, but we want to sponsor them anyway in hopes that they will. You need to cut that into the actual show. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to be splicing in about five minutes of a podcast. It's just going to be a sponsor read. You know, you know, you're. Uh... Yeah, there we go. Episode episode one is a fake sponsor read. There's two hours of other audio that I just had to cut for quality issues. The Stack Exchange podcast does uh, a fake sponsor read at the beginning of their at the, of their podcasts. Actually, I didn't even know they had a podcast. Did you uh, listen to the old Stack Overflow podcast? No, no, I haven't. Yeah, many many years ago, I found out about. Stack Overflow from I think a, a either a Joel on Software article or a Slashdot article that was talking about how Coding Horror and Joel were going to do a collaboration and they and they were starting a podcast and so I started listening to that podcast from the very first episode when uh, when Stack Exchange or Stack Overflow didn't even exist yet. And there was a running joke in that podcast that they were two weeks away from a beta and that lasted for like four months. <laughs> Sounds like Marco and Overcast. Yes, yes. Oh, and that was the other thing that when, when you had mentioned that you were considering uh, an M5, I'm like, PHP, 
M5, you're going to full Marco. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it crossed my mind. It actually, that actually did cross my mind. All you need now is a delayed product. Missing audio. Alien suspected. I have dislike. I don't mind going out to big spaces. I just don't like large crowds of people. Yeah, I'm not a fan of that either, which is not nice for New York. I keep wondering, like, whenever you mention New York and about New York lifestyle and stuff like that, I always think of the Borg. <laughs> okay. I always think of the Borg. I mean, without fail. Because it's a giant mass of people? It's a giant collective. Yeah, like in the show, you'd hear Jackie Chang with her cat in the background, <laughs> meowing every now and then. And it almost had this folksy kind of appeal to it. it it's kind of funny, because like, they would say stuff on the show that would just be obviously wrong. And, you know, I want to shout wrong, you know, like you, you ever see a Saturday Night Live with. Uh, oh, I was thinking Sherlock um, wrong. You know, I haven't watched through. I haven't watched through Sherlock. I know I should. It's really good. I need to get over my bitterness of Benedict Cumberbatch playing Khan. <sighs> he 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 does so well with Sherlock, though. I think what it is, is that he's a talented actor, but. In Star Wars Episode One, you have talented actors who are who have a so-so director, and I mean J.J. Abrams. He's not like his weaknesses. His strengths are completely conducive to Star Wars. Right. They are not. That's that's why um you know it was the in the incomparable podcast for the, the for the new Star Trek movie. It was the best Star Wars we've seen in a long time. You know, it's so fitting. It is so incredibly fitting, and I am actually looking forward to seeing what he would do with Star Wars. What I am also excited about is for Episode 8 and 9, how they signed on Ryan Johnson. Who's Ryan Johnson? Ryan Johnson did Looper, and he also oh, did okay. a couple episodes. He directed a couple episodes of oh, Breaking right. Bad. Oh, right. Now I remember. He actually remember. he directed my favorite episode of Breaking Bad, which was the Ozymandias one. Missing audio. Aliens suspected. So, do you, I mean, do you have a series of automated tests that you run? Um, yes. When it comes okay. to, I mean, when it comes to, like, for instance, compilation, compilation checking for, say, for instance, uh, database tables created, that sort of thing. I do stuff that uh, tests the install process. I don't necessarily test things that are, for instance, like UI pages, UI pages on the, um, for instance, the admin panel. I don't really, I don't have automated tests for that because usually most of the time what I'm testing to see is if the data gets written. Mm -hmm. If the data gets written, if there aren't any notices or exceptions that end up coming up and then correcting for them. Like, uh, for me, I use subversion and primarily mm -hmm. because I'm not doing distributed, <laughs> I'm using source control primarily for my own purposes because yeah. I'm the primary person who's committing. I'm not mm -hmm. doing, uh, I don't really care about, you know, having different people working on large chunks of code at one time. Eventually, you're going to have to switch it, though. At some point, I mean, the trend is just going towards Git, so... Yeah. Uh, I use I use Git for my projects, my current projects, mostly because that's what's 
easiest and built into Xcode. Mm -hmm. One of the things I like about Subversion is the fact that it's still using a numeric number for the version. So I actually use that numeric number within our product release. I see. So when I'm doing, when I'm building out the source and I'm, uh, I know it sounds funny from a PHP perspective when I'm, quote, compiling, which is mm-hmm. really encoding the software so that people can't steal it. The build process does a string replace that replaces, you know, um, hashtag revision with the actual subversion build number. Mm-hmm. And then the auto update system is taking into that into account, the actual revision number. So, of course, with Git, since they seem to be a bunch of random characters, it'll be harder to basically tell what is an update, which yeah, I'll have to... Yeah, I, I can see that. Which, I mean, I'll, it's something that it can be completely addressed by having an actual full list. Yeah. Yeah, if you have a full list of files, then you then you have essentially the same thing, because if any one of the files changes, you can just increment your, increment your number. Yeah. When I do my builds, I just... It's easier for me since I have an actual executable. There, a part of the project file is the version number, and another part of the project file is the build number. Though they don't actually automatically increment, so I had to set up a script to go and increment those numbers every time I actually build. Oh, nice. Okay, so you're at like thousands, you know, thousands upon thousands of uh, my build. Well, my build number for a simple lift log, I think, is. 1,500 or so. Okay. That's a lot lower than I thought it would be. Like, my uh, my software is on commit... It is on commit 3284. Nice. So, I mean, that that's not even, like, building. That's, you know, committing things and changing things. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my simple lift log has not been around for very long. Right. I love the kind of stuff where there are small incremental changes, but I find in my software there are times where it's like they're... I have to change... 30 or 40 files and it's just annoying it's annoying because then the tests the tests are more extensive Mm -hmm. and the chance that there's something going wrong is more extensive yep i'm extremely paranoid about big changes i i'm one of those people that rebuilds basically anytime they're not typing Mm -hmm. is there a script for doing that i think someone probably has written one um I mean, Xcode makes it a little less necessary because anything that would cause a build error shows up immediately. So I don't actually have to rebuild, um, but I do anyway. And then I'll usually, if I'm going to think about something for more than like a minute or so, I'll do a run and poke at it. It's strange in a lot of ways that uh, going from like my case where I'm just the sole developer. I'm the sole developer, so I get entire autonomy over what kind of coding practices, mm-hmm. what kind of tests, what kind of discipline I'm going to choose to do compared to something that's much, much more rigid. Working alone. I'll talk to you later. Okay. Bye. All right. Bye. Locks, semaphores, mutexes, monitors, that sort of thing. And, you know, so I decide to Google each of them in turn. And, and you came up with nachos. And you're like, no. <laughs> no. 